Happy Halloween, everyone. You may notice a difference in audio quality during the interview, and that is because while I usually record in recording studio, tonight I recorded at home due to logistics and familial reasons. With that being said, roll the theme music. My guest tonight, Matt, is a seasoned paranormal investigator who runs GhostTown.com which is an amazing resource for folks like me who love investigating the paranormal. He got started in his journey of documenting the afterlife as a young teenager, being set out on cases on behalf of paranormal investigative juggernauts Ed and Lorraine Warren. Tonight, he shares just a few of his chilling cases. Hey Matt, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. So Matt, let's start from the very beginning and just tell everybody what got you interested in the paranormal and led you on this path of uh, being a paranormal investigator? Great question. Um, when I was very young, I think my earliest uh, memories were, you know, watching horror movies with, with my mother. Um, she was uh, quite a horror movie aficionado, and I think I was probably five or six years old, and we would, you know, spend uh, Friday nights, you know, watching scary movies together, which in hindsight was probably a bit too young for some of the things that we were watching, like Halloween and Amityville and things like that. Um but you know those were some of my 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 earliest memories my mom actually had a a friend uh that was that was irish um an irish immigrant and she had some pretty fantastic you know paranormal stories that that you know she would tell me and that really i think peaked you know, my interest as far as the supernatural goes, you know, it was one thing to, you know, watch these movies and know that they were kind of fantasy and, and things like that. Um, and my mom always reinforced, you know, this is not real. This is, you know, as young as I was, this is just something that's kind of make believe for entertainment purposes. Um, but to hear these stories that at least in her mind were absolutely true is really, you know, kind of started to pique my interest in, in, in the paranormal. The other side of that was, you know, I live in uh, I live in Connecticut. I live fairly close to the Warrens, so the the paranormal is kind of always around. You know, there was always different uh, lectures and, and things like that taking place. Uh, they had written, you know, several books on, on the matter that are available in all the local libraries and what have you. So. You know, after hearing these stories, I decided to go out and, and you know try and read up on some of those things on my own, and so I come across some of the some of the Warren's books and started reading those, and some of the stories were you know based locally, you know, which really heightened my uh, my my interest, and it kind of kind of took off from there. So speaking of Ed and Lorraine Warren, um, that's kind of how you got your start, right? They were holding classes at like a bookstore, or a... where was it again? Yeah, so they, um, <laughs> I was actually probably 14 or, or 15 years old at the time and having read their books, um, you know, Ghost Hunters and, and things like that, or Ghost Hunter, I believe it was called. I, uh, I started to kind of want to investigate some of the local stories they had, like white, uh, the White Lady of Union Cemetery, for example, uh, which was fairly close to me. So I said, well, this is a great place to start. I read it here in the book. It's not that far. Um, I can get a ride there from, from some other people in high school at the time. And, uh, and that's what we started doing. You know, I, my friends and I, we'd, we'd go to these, these local places and, you know, take some pictures and things based on, you know, what we read in these books and, and try and get some, uh, some, some evidence, if you will. 
And from there, I decided one day, you know, let me let me just call them. Uh, they're pretty local. I, I either dialed information or looked in the phone book or something like that. And I called them directly. And to my surprise, uh, Lorraine answered the phone. And I said, you know, Lorraine, I'm I'm young. I'm local. I've read some of your books. I'm really interested. You know, where where do I go from here? And she said, well, it just so happens that we have a class on Monday nights at uh, at a, a restaurant called Carousel Gardens, which was uh, purported to be haunted, and that I was welcome to join them, you know, at any time, and it was fairly close to me, so I started doing that on on <laughs> on Mondays, going to their uh, to their classes. Now, would they actually walk through the restaurant and try to pick up on any evidence that they could find uh, to kind of show you guys what to look for, or what was going on? No, it was, it was more they they had basically uh, the restaurant was very large. And, Really nice kind of uh, nice kind of place, and had a, I, I believe it was historic, if I remember correctly. At least the building seemed to be a very large, you know, uh, type of mansion, and um, and I don't recall the story exactly, but you know, it was supposed to be haunted by this uh, the, by this woman searching for her children. She died prematurely, you know, kind of the typical uh, uh, ghost tale. And um, and they would basically have one of the rooms upstairs uh, for the evening and everybody would meet in there and they would go over, you know, some of their investigations. Um, they'd talk about, you know, theories and things like that, uh, go over some slides and what have you. And that took place, you know, on, on Monday evenings. And every now and again, I, I think maybe once a year that they would shut down the restaurant and allow us to uh, to investigate. But that wasn't uh, kind of a weekly thing. And about how long did you do that where you were sitting at the restaurant taking these classes with Ed and Lorraine Warren? Well, probably two or three years if I, uh, if I, had, to, if I had to remember correctly. Um, it was quite, uh, quite some time. You know, we were there a while. A lot of people had come and gone. Um, I had actually met some lifelong friends there, uh, believe it or not. In fact, one, one gentleman I, I met at the time is now uh, godfather to my oldest daughter. So uh, it, was, it was a great experience all around and made some, made some wonderful, wonderful friends that way. Wow, that's awesome, man. And I would imagine that some of these people would go on these investigations with you later on, right? They did. And we had a pretty eclectic group. I recall that we had, uh, you know, a, a, a heart a heart surgeon actually was, a, you know, one of the one of the members, uh, one woman that went on to go start her own group and be fairly successful in the area doing that sort of thing. Um, some local police officers, you know, were involved. Um you know, a, a young person. I was probably 14 or 15 at the time. So we had a pretty diverse group of people, uh, you know, going to these classes and, and lending different areas of expertise to the investigations. So the two years that you sat in on these classes um, with Ed and Lorraine, was it basically like um, two years of probationary period before you went off in your own investigations or what? No, I think... Um, that happened fairly quickly, okay. and the way that they uh, accepted, you know, accepted people to go on these investigations was uh, based on availability. You know, I was young at the time. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't available for for all of them for for certain, but um, you know, the ones that I could go on, I, I definitely tried to uh, to go on and present evidence. And they were they're actually pretty, uh, you know, pretty good about you know getting information back. You, you know, you're expected to write up a report on on what took place, provide evidence, video, audio, things like that. So uh, it was. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't kind of willy-nilly, you know, it was, you go out there, there was a team lead, you know, you'd be in the field, you'd take direction from the, from the team lead, but then you, you know, you actually had to take notes and things like that and provide your information back to them. So Matt, speaking of those early days, I really would like you to tell us about kind of the first investigations that the Warrens really sent you out on after you had been training with them for a little while. 
And that's actually how um, I kind of came in contact with you because I was perusing Reddit and I saw your response to like the monthly topic on uh, the paranormal subreddit. And I just absolutely, I, I read your story and I just was like, I got to talk to this guy because the story is so fascinating. So would you go ahead and uh, start us off? Yeah, sure. That was uh, that was a, quite a fascinating night and one that obviously stuck out in my mind so much so that I had to write about it. Um, you know, years years later, uh, the Warrens had gotten a call from a from a family that had recently moved from from Florida to uh, to Connecticut. Um, why anybody would do that, I'm not exactly 100 percent sure. So that was uh, that was the uh, my suspicion was aroused at that point. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you go from the warm weather to uh, the worst of all worlds. But uh, I digress. Anyway. Um, and they were saying that you know they were having some some phenomena taking place uh, in their home. It was enough that it that it scared them. You know, some, some banging on the walls, um, some of their electronics acting very strange. You know, some some voices and sounds that they heard at night. So much so that the children, you know, couldn't even get a, a full night's sleep at that at this at this house. So it was pretty constant then, huh? Every night. Yeah, it was it was fairly frequent and uh, I, I recall it being quite urgent that, that we had to go, you know, on this uh, on this investigation. And the Warrens actually checked um, because, I, you know, my age at the time, I had to get a waiver uh, from my parents. I had to prove that I was baptized. Um, I had to go to confession ahead of time, uh, just anticipating that this case might be just more than your typical supernatural occurrence. So, you know, all those things in order, you know, the group was was finally able to, uh, you know, to, to go to this residence. And we get there and it's actually a duplex uh, apartment. So not uh, not uncommon in, in, in that particular area, and the style of the apartment itself was uh, was a railroad style, which I, you know, at the time I, I didn't know you know what what the architecture was called, but basically, you walk into the home, and the first thing you're greeted with is the living room, and then you walk through the kitchen, and basically all of the rooms are in a straight row uh, until you get. To you know, to the back, which was kind of a, a separate, you know, sort of entertainment area. So it was uh, living room, kitchen, you know, children's room, parents' room, uh, and then another entertaining area. And then maybe off to the side, I believe there was a, there was a bathroom at, at this place. So we go in, um, strikes me as a normal family, you know, the children are very polite, everybody's really nice. The one thing that struck me was the, the oldest uh, child, which was I, probably my age at the time, actually, was uh, really distant, um, kind of gothic-like, not particularly, didn't, you know, didn't really want to speak with us, um, wasn't very open, you know, wanted to kind of keep his distance and stay away, which is not uncommon for a teenager, I suppose. Um, but you definitely got this strange uh, feeling from, from that particular family member. And so, you know, we start our investigation, you know, we set up uh, some tape recorders and things like that. And we're walking around the house. And uh, at one point, we all kind of, I think there was four or five of us at the time, we gather around the, the, the kitchen table and, and they had a, a, you know, a phone there, old style, you know, uh, corded phone, if you will. And, and the phone rings and the father answers it and, and it, it happens to be 911. So 911, what's your emergency? And uh, we say, well, there's there's no emergency here. Nobody dialed 911. It's the only phone in the house. You know, uh, you could definitely see if somebody else was trying to use another phone because it's every room is in a row. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you know, we hang up the phone and we're chatting around the table. And then a couple of minutes later, the phone rings. 
um, when I think one of the other members on the team picks up, it's 911. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, no emergency here. <laughs> Apologize. Must be one of the children. You know, we tell the uh, to tell the operator we hang up, and, and this happens probably two or three more times to the point where the police actually show up to the house because they had received so many calls from the house dialing 911 uh, that uh, that they had to investigate. So that was kind of the first incident of, of the evening. But as the evening progressed, you know, you started to get more and more of an oppressive feeling within within the residence. I recall going to the back room, uh, the last room in the house. It's a little bit dark, but when you look into the darkness of the room, the back of the room seems to be more dark than everything else, if that makes sense. It's it's tough to describe, but you just get the you get the sense that this particular area was just much darker than the darkness. You know, it's it's uh, tough to describe. If I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah it's very uh, very <laughs> yeah. strange. It was cold. It was cold in the room. It just didn't feel normal and you know I, I walked up to the wall and I put my hand on the wall and when I did that it, it looked like the wall was moving backwards you know like you, you put your hand on the wall and it looks like you're pushing the room out uh, which is of course impossible but you know it, it's just it, it was the strangest occurrence you know just really felt like moving the wall um, which of course was some sort of, you know, psychic imprint or something like that, but it wasn't, uh, you know, anything that was actually taking place. So, so that was kind of the second incident of, of the night that that really struck me. After that, you know, we go, I go back, uh, I reconvene you with the team. I let them know what I've seen. We go into the kitchen. Uh, it, it's much, much. It's probably early in the morning at this point, maybe two or three o'clock in the morning. And everybody goes outside to kind of get some fresh air, take a break. And uh, myself and another investigator in the kitchen in this very narrow railroad style, we're standing across from each other. And I'm looking at him and, and he's looking at me. We're chatting a little bit, low key. The, the children are, are finally sleeping. I get they get some sort of comfort that, you know, we're in the uh, we're in the house. And to my left, there's a there's a shelf and there's all sorts of things on it, you know, some food. It's like a kind of a pantry type shelf, but there's a toaster on it on one end of it. And it looks like somebody just beat this thing up. I, I don't know why this toaster was on the shelf. Uh, it was dented. It just looked like, you know, I, I think I described in the article that, uh, you know, reminded me of office space. I thought somebody was in the field with a baseball bat just right. beating on this toaster. That's how that's how it looked. And the, the cord was wrapped around it. You know, so I'm, I'm chatting with this uh, with this individual, and and, it, and all of a sudden the, the toaster moves across the shelf and stops next to me and pops like there's toast in it. Wow. And I could see this out of my periphery, and I'm uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of in shock, you know, and, and in disbelief that this really happened. And uh, you know, I see the person in front of me, and their eyes kind of widen. I said, "Did you see that?" He's like, "Yeah, I, I, I saw that." And no sooner did we have that exchange that the father comes running in from outside and says, guys, guys, keep it down. You know, the children are finally sleeping. And we're like, well, we, we didn't make any noise. And he said, yes, what do you need? You know, we're screaming, you know, for help. So it wasn't, <laughs> we weren't screaming for help. So, so we had heard this voice from inside the house that was telling him to come in, that they needed help. Uh, but it was just us having a low-key conversation in this toaster uh, incident. So that was kind of, you know, occurrence three and four uh, that really drove home that something was happening, you know, in this in this home. Wow. And so he kind of thought that it was one of you guys, like maybe it mimicked your voice or something? or Yeah, I, I don't know that it was our voice necessarily or that he really knew us well enough to 
identify a particular voice that's screaming as ours. He just heard it from the inside and assumed it was us and, and, and came in and was <laughs> emphatic that we keep our voices down. But uh, of course it wasn't us that was, you know, screaming from the, from the inside of the house. The interesting thing that, that uh, now that I'm, I'm talking about it is that they had, I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure how they came across this, you know, particular method of communication, but they had a cable box, um, you know, on the TV in, in the in the front living room, and they would assign letters to numbers on the cable box to channels, and they would essentially use it as a Ouija board. They would ask questions, and the cable box would change the channel, you know, corresponding to the letter that they were trying to communicate with, you know. Your team would? No, no, the the family. Oh, the family. Yeah, channel two being A, three being B, and so on, and they would write this out, and they would, you know, try and get get messages this way, and and you know, it, it appeared to work, which is I'm not sure what prompted this sort of uh, you know c communication, but it was essentially a form of divination, if you will, that they would you know, talk to this cable box and, and it would respond with, uh, with letters and number, you know, with numbers corresponding to, to letters. Wow. That's so, that's so fascinating. I had never heard of that before. Like I've heard of like talk boxes or whatever they're called, where you can kind of like a cycle through, uh, uh, radio frequencies and you can kind of make out words or whatever, but never just like a, a random cable box, um, just kind of hooked up normally. I mean, that's, yeah, no, it was it was you know old school. I mean, we're probably you know we're talking mid mid nineties at the time, so it was coax to the sure. cable box, you know, and uh, not not like the digital tuners that we have today. But you know, it was yeah, it was it was their it was their method of watching TV at the, at the time. So very strange, you know, the way that uh, people tend to communicate, you know, to, to the other worlds, is, uh, it, it doesn't, there's many different methods to do it. You know, one being the, the Ouija board is the most obvious or um, dowsing rods and, and seances and, and things like that. So people get very creative in how they try to communicate, but also how, you know, uh, spirits try and communicate back with you. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of not surprised that this somehow happened or, or they were prompted to do this in some way, but, you know, there's, there's you know, so many different methods to do it that, you know, I guess it, it shouldn't come as a shock, I suppose. Yeah, so it was quite an interesting case. As it turns out, you know, we, we left there that night after, um, you know, the, those incidences took place and there, and there were subsequent, uh, you know, investigations into the uh, into the house that I was not a part of. But uh, as it turns out, the, the oldest son was taking part in these satanic rituals in Florida that, um, you know, I think he was uh, sort of an outcast in school, a bit unpopular. They're trying to cast these spells to help uh, he and his friends to make themselves more popular and just kind of calling on, uh, you know, the spirit world to, to, to help them in their everyday lives. Not, you know, they weren't really malicious, you know, they weren't really intent on, uh, you know, devil worship or anything like that, but they went into a bookstore of some kind. They found, you know, a book of different uh, spells and things like that, and and they really, you know, were trying to reach out to just better better their own lives, which, of course, kind of turned out in the wrong direction. But, you know, you'll find that, you know, through your readings and different movies and things like that, that's how this sort of thing starts to happen, right? You know, it preys on the... Uh, on the on, the, on people that are easy targets, if you will. They're bullies, yes, in a sense. Absolutely. So what a way to get started out of the gate, huh? I mean, geez. <laughs> yeah, it's all downhill after that. <laughs> so, so, um, so what happened to the family after that? I mean, uh, was it classified as sort of a demonic presence in the home? And 
or what what was the uh, classification there it, it was and to my knowledge uh if i remember correctly there was what they call self-munigation uh done on the house which is a a, a catholic uh, ritual with incense and things like that which is a sort of exorcism on the house you know a type of blessing to to get rid of of such things and, and i believe it was successful it doesn't seem to be anything that was particularly strong or you know, uh, rooted uh, or anything like that at the time. Luckily, I, I suppose it could have gotten out of control uh, much more so after that. But I think it was it was early enough and, and caught in time that that sort of thing is was uh, was successful. So, man, I was curious if you could tell us how seasoned paranormal investigators go actually go about classifying these hauntings, these cases, and what they think is going on, documenting it, and uh, providing a remedy or a if a remedy is even needed at all. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when you're looking at a, at a haunting, you know, there's really two, two types that, that at least I, you know, from my own perspective tend to classify, whether it's supernatural or whether it's preternatural. And the difference being that one as a spirit had at one time walked the earth and the other side, the preternatural being that has never, you know, ever walked the earth which is a much more sinister, uh, you know, threat, to, you know, to the to the individuals than, than the supernatural. And on the supernatural side, there's many different causes for for haunting. So it's, you know, that's the point of the investigation is to find out what's causing it. Is it a, some sort of psychic imprint uh, on on the area? This this type of movie that plays itself out over and over again that never really interacts with the individual world, or is it an actual spirit that never quite moved on that is trying to make contact that is confused or you know needs some sort of guidance to to move on to the uh, to the next realm, or is it just a bad person that was bad here in life? that is continuing to be bad after. Uh, so, you know, those are the kind of areas that you would look towards in the supernatural space. On the preternatural side, you're dealing with something that's uh, it's much, much, you know, smarter and intelligent. And there's there's a method, you know, to, to all the madness. You know, there's, there's, there's a goal in mind. And it's, you know, it knows things that we don't know. It's got knowledge that we'll never have. And it's got powers that we don't because they're not bound by the physical space. They're not, they're not bound by the laws of physics as you and I know them here on Earth. So that's uh, what really makes the scary part of it. You know, when you go into investigation and there may be things that are moving or, or things that are levitating or, you know, sort of these activities that don't make sense because in our mind, from what we've learned in school, they can't possibly happen, and yet they do. So those are the tenants, you know, those are the things that we look for on the, on the preternatural side. And it's essentially a, there, there's a religious component to the, to the preternatural, you know, at least from my perspective. I'm, you know, I'm a Roman Catholic, um, and I think in, in terms of, of that, most Christians uh, believe the same, you know, in terms of the, the, the preternatural side and other religions as well. You know, I think for the most part, there's everybody has their kind of interpretation of what's happening. But if you really look into it, it's sort of based on the same on the same principle. So, you know, when we're looking uh, we're looking at those, we're trying to determine, you know, what, what's taking place that can't be that can't be explained. You know, is it is it something that's bound by human activity or something that's, you know, unbound by preternatural activity? And those are the things that we look for in our particular investigation. Wow, dude, I am so glad that I invited you on the show to talk to us about this because that is exactly what I wanted to hear. I mean, that's just, 
It anyway. So Matt, what was the strangest thing that you've ever experienced going out on some of these cases? Well, you know, there's uh, there's been some strange ones. Obviously, the last investigation we talked about is was uh, really kind of opened my eyes to what can be, and what can take place. But what I found is dealing with some of these cases uh, in the you know the preternatural sense is that uh, these inhuman spirits may know that you're investigating this case before you even know that you're investing in this case, and then many times they issue a warning. You know, so if you ever watch the movie, uh, and, and I bring this up because my wife and I just watched it, uh, The Conjuring Two. You know where Lorraine goes into uh, into the room, and, and there's the painting of the nun on the wall, and the nun comes out and is basically uh, communicating with Lorraine before they go on this Enfield investigation. Mm -hmm. And you can infer from that scene that it's sort of a warning. And now they don't know in particular that they're going on this investigation or, or what's involved or what's there or anything like that. But the spirits do, you know, so they're kind of... They, they, they start to uh, reach out even before you go on this investigation. And one such time, I, I think I got one of those warnings. I was, um, my my group and I, you know, we went to a, a place in, in Connecticut, uh, Cornwall Bridge, Connecticut, called Dudley Town. And there's uh, some folklore surrounding Dudley Town that it's an abandoned village and it's haunted and that's what caused its abandonment and it's cursed and, you know, all the sorts of things that go on with small town uh, folklore. Um, but it's something that we wanted to look into because the, the surrounding area is quite intriguing. You know, it's it's a part of Dark Entry Forest Association. It's off of a road that's called Dark Entry Road. You know, it's it definitely has all the hallmarks of um, something that some folklore that may be based in some sort of fact. So we go up there and, and you know, we start to look around and, you know, you walk in the, the first road and, and you're actually not allowed to go there as far as I know anymore. Uh, there's no trespassing allowed in this particular area because of the folklore surrounding it. But um, at the time, you, you, you know, you could go in there and, and we went in through the middle of the day walking around and down the main trail. You can find, you know, off to the side, many abandoned foundations, uh, some, you know, historic homes were at some point, you know, dotted this this forest area um and we're walking around and following the trails and we come across a small clearing and we see some rocks aligned that look like they you know could be chairs you know if you will places to sit and in the center there's this altar that is made of wood is very uh, ornately carved uh, somebody took a lot of time to to you know to, to dress up this 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 altar and what we you know perceived to be an altar and it it seemed to be coated in a red substance that that we thought at the time was was blood so we're looking you know if you can imagine you come across a small clearing you know we expect to you know, we're luck, looking around haunted woods but we come across a clearing where there's kind of a an outcrop of rocks where you can imagine people sitting around this particular wooden ornately carved piece of wood that's got bloodstains on it you know so <laughs> we we're a little freaked out at the at the time and we said you know like like any of us would think when we see such a thing we're like we have to come back here tonight <laughs> you know, we're, we're, right. we're looking at this and we said, we're coming back here so so we leave uh we wait till evening it's still a little it's dusk we go back uh we climb into one of the foundations we get our camera gear ready and things like that and we're just waiting around and out in the distance from where this little alcove was you hear gong gong and there's just three 
gongs out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. So we're we're hearing this, and right after we hear it, we hear this owl um, kind of close to us. You know, we hear a crunching noise in the woods, and then we hear this owl. But it wasn't like a it wasn't like an owl. It sounded like it was somebody trying to make an owl noise. You know, it sounded like it was a human being trying to make an owl noise. If, sure. if that makes sense. And so we're like, you know what? Um, this this is not safe. <laughs> we're gonna. <laughs> I think we're gonna pack it up and maybe, maybe get out of here because we don't know what's out there. We don't know who's out there. We believe that maybe at this time they potentially know that we're there, uh, and and we're gonna leave. So so we pack up our stuff and we climb out of the foundation and, and we're walking down the trail. And I, you can hear a crunching in the woods, like there's a biped, like sounds like two feet, you know, walking along the side, kind, kind of, of ushering you out ushering us out yeah exactly and um and so we left without incidents um but I, but i go home and you know I'm, I'm fairly young still and i'm living with my my parents and you know my parents house uh was an old farmhouse very small uh built in like 1905 um and and so the you know the door jams aren't quite plumb so you know if you if you have to open a door you really have to push it hard and you can hear it you know open and you know you get that sound you could tell when people are walking around the house based on their cadence and their footsteps and things Absolutely. like that you know who it is so i'm laying in bed and, and when you come up the stairs you know my my door is just adjacent to the staircase you have to walk past it to get to anywhere else upstairs which was very small i, th I think the whole house is probably 900 square feet or something it's very small but i hear um somebody what sounds like my father come up the wooden steps in the basement force the door open because you can hear it kind of you know trudge against the door jam come through the kitchen come through the living room open up the small french doors that lead to the, the staircase slam them shut like like my father would do and kind of come up the stairs but quickly like like two stairs at a time you just you know and that's it sounded like my father that's what we do we would just kind of run upstairs two steps at a time i'm looking out the door and i'm waiting for somebody to come by and nobody ever does. And that was, I think, the first time that I really had the hair stand up, you know, even aside from the other case. You know, the other case was scary, but there's strength in numbers. You know, I had somebody else there with me. There was people outside. You know, you're, you know, you're there all together. But, you know, I'm in my room, I'm in the dark, I'm in the comfort of my own home. I expect to feel safe there. And I hear somebody literally walk up the stairs, cut through the house, and then run up the staircase and never walk by the room. And in my interpretation of that was it was a bit of a warning to kind of stay away, you know, from what we were looking into, whatever was, you know, taking place there at, at Dudley Town. Were there any, um, was there any rumored uh, satanic activity out there in, in Dudley Town or? Was it just something you kind of stumbled onto and was like, well, okay, well, here we go? Or did you kind of have, like, hey, there may be something going on out here, you know, um, probably you know, kids we, doing it or whatever? Yeah, we didn't expect it at the time, although in hindsight, uh, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be surprising. Because I think a lot of these places that have this, you know, sort of aura, this folklore surrounding it may not even be haunted or may, you know, not be uh, haunted in the sense that, that, that we you know, think it is, but that it attracts some of these behaviors. And then, you know, it starts to develop uh, 
sort of this, you know, supernatural uh, entity all on its own. And that tends to happen, I think, in some places that you wouldn't expect. You know, there's a there's another interesting uh, story that 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 took place, and it, the kind of my my point to all of this is, I think that in some cases we invite these places to be haunted that wouldn't normally be you know even though we've heard stories about them and one such place is uh, called there's a place near me called hookman cemetery and you know there's the the story of a guy with a hook you know and he's and you know if you park there you know you park there as teenagers and you kind of it's a dark road so you can you know make out or whatever and you know you hear the hook down the side of your car and you drive away but then you find the hook dangling under the car kind of you know that sort of story and, and that's probably obviously not a, a true story but it, it attracts um you know different types of behaviors this area so i was uh, with a friend of mine who um actually uh, joined the Marine Corps with me. Um, we were uh, good friends. We were supposed to go on the buddy program and uh, kind of a rough and tough kind of kind of guy. You know, if you've ever seen him, you know, you, it's the kind of guy you look at and you're like, yeah, I'm not going to mess with that guy. He's got sleeve tattoos all over the place. He's a, you know, amateur MMA fighter, uh, Marine, and uh, not the kind of guy you'd think would, would scare easily. But at any rate, we, we go uh, to this 4th of July celebration in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, called Riverfest, and we're we're there. And the the route that takes us back home goes goes past two places that I believe to be haunted. One of them, um, actually three places. One of them is called Green Lady Cemetery, and I had gone there. Uh, yeah, I don't even know how we found this place. This cemetery is in the middle of nowhere. I think it's on like water company property. There's nothing, nothing around it. Uh, we found out actually at the Warren's class about this this Green Lady Cemetery, and we started going up there uh, every single every single week, probably three weeks straight, trying to find this place. So we would go and we would literally ask people in town, "Hey, we walking down the street. Hey, have you heard of this place? Do you know where it is?" Everybody heard of it. Nobody knew where it was. <laughs> so, so we drove around and we came across this trail off the side of a road, and it was big enough for a car. And there's all these turns down into the woods, and somehow, we drive through the woods and we find this this, this cemetery. Wow. So we go there uh, every night for two or three weeks, and this is back before, you know, digital cameras were big, so we had film, you know, and all this kind of thing, and we're, and we're young, you know, it's, you have to have it developed, and that's, costs money, and, you know, so uh, at the, at the end, we were like, you know, we're going to give up on this place, we're not getting anything here, it's, you know, we're spending a lot of money on film developing, and what have you, and so one of the last nights that we go, um, we're, we're there, and I, it starts to rain, and we're already frustrated because we're not getting anything. We're wasting more time there. Now it starts to rain. I put all my stuff back in the car, and we start to see this green glow out in the woods. And my buddy's like, do you see that? And I was like, oh my god, I see this, and I'm trying to get in the car. Like, the car's locked. My camcorder's in there. I'm trying to get stuff out of there. And I'm looking at it as I'm trying to get in the car, and the sooner do I get to my camcorder that it just it dies. <laughs> so I'm like, we have to go, and, you know, we have to investigate this. So we go, the the trail stops. There's some boulders in front of it. Your car can't go any further. But we walk down there, and there's really no way for anybody else to get farther down the trail. And we look around, and we don't see anything. So maybe it was somebody out there. I don't know. We we didn't find anything, uh, but it kind of piqued our interest to keep going back there. So. 
fast forward, I'm, I'm with, with my friend and, and, you know, we're, we're going to go past this. I said, look, you know, on the way home, I have some, some film. Let's, let's just do some ghost hunting. He says, all right, all right, I'll go. So we, we go to this green lady cemetery in the middle of the woods and I pull up and, um, we're taking some pictures and another group of teenagers rolls up behind us. I'm like, Oh great. Here we go. So they're there and they're they see a ghost behind every corner and they're loud, obnoxious and probably drunk. And I'm like, you know what? We're going to pack up and leave here. There's another place down the road. That's an abandoned log cabin that we heard at one time was a church and that there was some, some murders that had taken place there and it's purported to be haunted so we, the full story uh is is a little more you know benign but uh we believe it to be haunted nonetheless so we go there and we get out and he says matt it's like something happened at green lady he's like i didn't want to sound like those other kids that showed up that were probably nuts and drunk and just teenagers he's like but something keeps looking over my left shoulder and I can't turn my head fast enough to see it. I said, that's great. <laughs> when that happens, tell me and I'll take a picture. <laughs> you know? And he's like, all right. He's like, I don't want you to think I'm crazy. I'm like, no, just, just let me know. So now we're at this, this quote unquote church. And wouldn't you know, I think a roll of film had what, 24 pictures at the time. I think 22 out of 24 pictures had something on them. Whenever he told me to take a picture that something was peeking over his shoulder. Hmm. So I was like, this is fantastic. You are my lucky charm, my friend. So do you still have those the, photos, by the way? I do. Ooh. I do. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And uh, I'll, I'll shoot them over to you. you right. I'll see. put them in the show notes. Yeah, they're uh, they're pretty uh, they're pretty interesting. So so we uh, we get all that on the way home. I was like, we're gonna stop at this Hookman's Cemetery, and uh, we're gonna take some pictures. And he's like, okay. So we get there, and we roll up, and he's like, you know what? I'm not gonna get out of the car. Now he's totally freaked out. <laughs> and uh, I said, all right, that's no problem. I'll get out and I'll take some pictures. So we get out there, and I start to hear this noise. And at first, I just pass it off as something like you know, some, uh, wild animal or something. And, and, but it gets louder and louder and louder. And it's kind of a, a screaming, screeching, yelling kind of noise. And it sounds like it's getting close to me, but there's nothing around. And so now I, it's past, you know, it's definitely not a dog or something that's nearby. So I look over at the car as my friend's rolling up the window <laughs> and I'm like, man, do you hear that? And he's like, yeah, can we go home? I was like, all right. So I take a snap, a couple of pictures and we heard that noise. We drove almost all the way home and the noise followed us. Oh and when it stopped, I'm like, you know what, man, we got to go back there and I got to put the tape recorder out. And he's like, oh boy. <laughs> so I go back there and uh, no sound, but I did pick up a couple of more pictures at this, at this particular place. So I think the long and short of it is, I don't think there's any hookmans at the cemetery, but I think the folklore had attracted enough people that probably went there and maybe were trying to, you know, conjure something or you know, use use the area for for something a little bit more nefarious. So yeah, which actually, uh, as long as we're on the topic uh, and kind of chatting, leads me to another story and another friend of mine uh, that was a little bit unnerving. 
I had taken I had taken uh, you know a friend of mine to another local cemetery to to investigate that we heard you know it, it was part of the local folklore if you will so we get there and um, we pull up and it's just him and I and we pull in and it's probably midnight and there's a car there We're like wow that's weird we pull up anyway because when you're you know that age you're invincible so we pull in and, and and the headlights are on in this car and it's facing a tombstone and uh i get out and it's this woman and she hops out of her car and, and she, you know i said well, what, are you, what are you doing here and she's like well my mom just died and uh i just want to be close to her so i'm here you know just waiting at the cemetery by her grave i was like well that's very weird but okay <laughs> <laughs> it's midnight. You know, like <laughs> right. She just got the headlights on facing her tombstone in the okay, middle of the night. Lady. Yeah, I was like, alrighty then. So uh, I said, well, we're gonna go ahead and take some pictures around this place. And she's like, all right, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and leave. I said, okay. So, so she packs. You know, she grabs it, gets in her car, and, and, and drives off. So, you know, we start taking some pictures and things like that, and uh, we don't really get anything. But we leave, and. My, my friend doesn't say a word the entire way home except to say, I think there's something in the back seat with me. Oh, shit. And I'm like, I'm looking at the rear view and I'm not, now I'm freaked out, you know? <laughs> and he's telling me these things. And, like, <laughs> and uh, I was like, dude, you're fine. Stop. So he's like, no, man, I think there's something back here with me. And I was like, all right, you know, it's, we didn't get anything. Nothing happens. You know, it's, you're just, you're, your imagination's getting away from you. So I drop him off at home. I go home and um, probably about 2.30 in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, his mother calls me and she says, were you guys doing drugs? I was like, uh, no, <laughs> we just went out and we we're doing some, uh, some paranormal investigations at this uh, local local cemetery. She's like, well, uh, you know, your friend came home and he couldn't sleep and he keeps seeing this old woman and he's... I had to call an ambulance. I was like, what? Mm. She's like, yeah, he, he thinks this woman is trying to attack him. And I had, like, he's out of control. I had to call an ambulance and they took him to the psych ward at the hospital. And it, I was like, oh my God. I was like, I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, nothing happened. We didn't, I didn't see any old lady or anything like that. So probably about 15 or 20 minutes after that. So now it's maybe 3.30. I get a knock at the, at the door. I was like, oh man, what, what is happening? I go downstairs, open the door. It's the police department. And they said, uh, what were you guys doing tonight? And I explained to him and he's like, I, he's like, I don't really understand what you're doing. So I, I grabbed my photo album. I'm like, oh, let me show you some pictures. This is what we do. And he's like, look, uh, were you guys doing drugs? <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's a, you're the second person to ask me that. No, we weren't doing drugs. Um, and he says, well, you know, your friend's in the hospital and he's asking for you and some rosary beads. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, he keeps asking for you and some rosary beads and they sent this down here to come get you. I said, well, I, this is all new to me. I don't really know what to do. So I call up Ed Warren at like four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I say, and he answers the phone and I say, Ed, I'm sorry to call you at four o'clock in the morning, but here's what happened. What should I do? He's like, yeah, take some rosary beads and you go to the hospital. <laughs> and I said, okay. Um, so I go up there and yeah, I mean, they had him strapped down and everything and he was totally, totally freaked out. 
and um, I said some. Is this like out of a movie or something? Yeah, he was just, uh, uh, you know, he. Uh, I I left um, my rosary beads under the under his pillow, and he calmed him down. I said some prayers. I imagined, you know, the white light around him, and you know, I just did the best I could for what he was asking for, and, and that seemed to calm down a little bit. And he was released two days later, and uh, he did never talk to me again after that. Actually, really? <laughs> so, oh. yeah. That sucks. Never again. No, yeah, that was uh, quite an interesting night. So I guess since you never got to talk to him again, you really have no idea of why he thought there was somebody in the back seat of the car, or how he ended up seeing her that night, or I, you know, I never got the details. He just would not not talk to me. And incidentally, my friend, who I'm still very good friends with, that came with me the night that he saw something peeking over his left hand shoulder. We still talk very frequently, uh, but uh, he'll he will not go out. You know, on an investigation ever again. No, <laughs> You're I burn bridges everywhere you go. Huh? I, I said, man, you know, I know if I take him with me, you know, we're gonna get some good, good evidence, and he uh, refuses to go. Well, Matt, I think that's a great place to stop for tonight. Um, I really enjoyed having you on, and I'd love to have you back. Um, and maybe we could go over some more cases. Maybe you could tell me what you think is going on, and perhaps what we could do to remedy their situation um just kind of provide some commentary for that if you're up for it that is i would love to that'd be great mike i'd really appreciate it and uh great great talking to you tonight i'd really like to thank matt for calling into the show and sharing just a sliver of his experiences investigating the great northeast of america matt runs a fantastic site called ghosttown.com which is an amazing tool for people interested in learning more about the paranormal he offers courses, articles, submissions, video evidence, photo evidence, and even EVPs. If you have a strange Heartland story that you would like to share with us, shoot us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or even send us an email at strangeheartland at gmail.com. I'm Mike Waters, and good night, and a happy Halloween. <laughs>